All right. Hello, folks. Good to be uh, with you this morning. Yeah, Aaron and I kind of picked out Sunday as a good day for me to give him a, a little break. So, as he said, he could get some other things done, which is good. I've been, uh, Dee and I have actually been in Florida, in the Gulf, in the beach, and that's why my suntan looks so good. And I just thought, you know, you all should know that. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, what I want to do today uh, with you, I'm, I'm actually beginning a series of teachings, a class at uh, the Bridge in Grimes uh, tonight, uh, four weeks where we'll do the um, uh, four of the different stories that Jesus told. Uh, I call them stories that surprise. And... Uh, so uh, rather than have to do two preparations, I'm going to give you what I'm, I'm going to practice on you so I'm really ready for tonight with this one. Now, the one we're doing, and uh, uh, Justine will put the scripture up in a bit, uh, the one we're doing will be familiar to many of you, um, maybe all of you, I don't, I don't know, but if it's not familiar, it doesn't matter. Because we're going to walk through it scene by scene by scene, this story uh, that Jesus tells. And I've renamed it. Um, I, I Originally, I was going to call it uh, the story of a dead man walking. Uh, but now, and I think you'll catch on after a while, I'm calling it instead the story of a dead man talking. Okay. Um, three things I want to say really, really quickly at the outset, just to kind of set the uh, uh, the context. One is just a reminder: always, when when we're dealing with uh, uh, the scriptures, we're dealing with a book that is largely uh, it, it's a Hebrew book. It's written by Jews. It's all written by first century Jews. Okay, Jesus is a first century Jew. Make no mistake about it. Jesus was not the first Christian. Jesus was thoroughly, totally Jew-ish. He was uh, immersed in his own traditions, his own scriptures. And yes, he pushed against some of that. But he did that from that perspective. So the story that, the stories that we hear when Jesus tells them are <clears throat> largely Jewish stories from the first century told to a first century Jewish audience by a first century Jew. So uh, hopefully I can weave some of that into it. It won't be a lot with this particular one, but I want you to just be aware of that. The other thing is now that the, the, the usual title for this parable is the parable of the rich fool. And uh, so this parable is, a, is about stuff. And uh, it's about the hoarding of, uh, of stuff. This fellow's possessions, this fellow's crops represented his wealth. It was his currency in the day. It was his retirement portfolio. It was all of those things, his stuff. Okay. Secondly, or thirdly, rather, um, 
I want you to recognize that Jesus, he actually says more about money and possessions than he does about absolutely anything else in the Gospels. He talks more about money and possessions than he speaks about prayer or worship or reading scripture or justice or fasting or meditating, you name it. Jesus talks more about money and possessions. And it's fair to wonder, so then what's the deal with a spiritual leader not teaching about spiritual things more? What? What's the deal here? Well, the deal is where I began. Jesus is a Jew. Jesus is a Jew. And that's how he would think. Here's the deal. Um, In uh, first century, you all remember, Roman Empire, right? So the Romans rule the world militarily. It's a Roman world. But since the time of Alexander the Great, 250 years before the time of Jesus, okay, the world has been dominated, and I'd suggest to you it has ever since, by Greek culture. The Greeks worked hard at getting their culture translated into everything. Everybody immersed with their culture. Well, here's one of the things that the Greeks believed, one of many. When they believed that there was this clear difference between the spirit and the body. The spirit is uh, good and right and pure. The body, not so much. Uh, The body may be created by an evil spirit. The body, the product of the war of the gods. Lots of this ancient mythology that goes on. The spirit is good. So the Greeks would talk about uh, the body being the prison house of the soul. Okay? And when you die and decay, then the soul escapes that prison and it goes off. That was absolutely contrary to Hebrew thinking. And Think back with me to the very first chapters of the book. Genesis 1 and 2. What do we learn there? A bunch of things, but at least these three things. God created the heavens and the earth. Right? And God called it all good. Looked out on all that he had made and called it good. And then God planted on the earth Uh, these image bearers of his to whom he entrusted the care of the beautiful earth that he had made. That was Hebrew thought. There was no, the body, God breathed into the body and it became one, body and soul is one. They did not think of this like we do in Western, if if you don't think this is, the way we think still today, you haven't been to a funeral recently. Okay? The New Testament is about resurrection. Body and soul united. 
Our more common thing today is they fluttered off to be with the angels, you know. Talk about right? Okay. So that's why Jesus would talk about uh, material things, why it was important to him, because the material world is important. It's God's world. It, uh, it belongs to God. And when you have that other viewpoint, then it doesn't matter what you do with the body, by the way. It doesn't matter what you do with the earth. Because it's all going to be destroyed sooner or later anyway. Okay? That's Greek. That's mythology. That's not uh, our scriptures. The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world, and all who live in it. The earth is the Lord's. What does that make us? Makes us caretakers which is exactly what it says in Genesis chapter 2. It all belongs to God, but it's been entrusted to our, our care. Now, it, with that as a background, let's look at the uh, parable of the dead man talking, all right? Verse 12, first scene of the story. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Luke tells us that uh, the scene earlier in chapter 2, Jesus uh, chapter 12, there's this uh, crowd of people, thousands, he says, who are around. But Jesus is speaking <clears throat> to his disciples. He's having a conversation with the disciples, and there's an interruption. This guy, would appear to be a young man, comes out of the crowd and pushes in to the circle. And he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, that word teacher for Luke um, is like rabbi. And, and the rabbis were supposed to be experts in the law. And so it was not uncommon for people to come and bring their disputes to a rabbi so that the rabbi might settle the dispute. Here appears to be uh, uh, what's going on. The guy, uh, the, the, the fellow chooses to describe the situation uh, as a uh, predicament. Now, he could have said to Jesus something like this. He could have said to Jesus, Teacher, my brother and I, well, we're having a, a, a dispute, and there's, there's the danger that this dispute could lead to a permanent rift in our relationship. I don't want that to happen. I don't want our relationship to be broken. Could you sit down with us, listen to him, listen to me, see if you can help bring us together? I think Jesus would have been all over the, that kind of rift. Request. Instead, the fellow makes a demand of Jesus. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Well, what's going on here? Apparently the father has died, and the estate was now the inheritance of the sons. Sorry, daughters don't inherit. Patriarchal society 
has been since about a hundred years ago, by the way. According to the law of that day, two-thirds of the estate then went to the older brother, and one-third of the estate went to the younger brother, and the law of that day said the estate would not be divided until the older brother, who's now the patriarch of the family, agrees to divide the estate. And apparently the older brother, for whatever reason, has decided not to divide up the estate, and the younger brother is not happy. For him, it's a matter of justice, and he's got an argument. He has a right to his inheritance, and he wants Rabbi Jesus, this rabbi with a great reputation, he wants Rabbi Jesus to tell his brother to get it done. But this is Jesus he's talking to. And Jesus is the great reconcile. Of course, Jesus cares about justice. Remember, he's a, he's a, he's a student of his book. Justice is all over his book. No doubt about that. But Jesus cares more about relationships. In fact, I think to Jesus, justice and relationships are closely tied. Remember these words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount? Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go, be reconciled to them, then come and offer the gift. Scene two. Jesus responds at verse 14. Jesus replied, Man... Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Notice how Jesus addresses the fellow. He calls him man. And that's a rather harsh way to address someone in that Middle Eastern culture. Jesus doesn't call him by name, doesn't call him brother, doesn't call him friend. He just says, man. Almost, not quite, but it's almost like Jesus dismisses him. And then Jesus turns to a different view of the problem. Jesus says, let's look at it, then he said to them, notice he's not talking just to the man, he's talking to his disciples. He says to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. That's Jesus turning the conversation around. Jesus saying, let's talk about greed. Let's talk about life in relationship to stuff. I like the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message translation, take care, protect yourselves against the least bit of greed. Life is not defined by what you have, by your stuff, even when you have a lot, even when you have a lot of stuff. Kenneth Bailey, a great Middle Eastern uh, scholar, says this, he says, possessions 
are bonded to a deep, often irrational fear, the fear of one one day not having enough. Regardless of how much wealth is squirreled away, this gnawing fear presses frail humans to acquire more. There's never quite enough because the insecurity never dies. Now, I don't know about you, but I can relate to that. I suspect you can too. My brother and I have had, a, had an ongoing conversation about this. We talk about it uh, every now and then. We talk about it because of our parents' story. Um, our, our parents, good, um, solid, salt-to-the-earth people, you, you know the kind of people I'm talking about, worked hard their entire lives, worked hard, Eventually, we were able to buy a little business, a grocery store in a small northwest Iowa town. They built up that business. They built it up well. And uh, that business um, and the home they had purchased uh, when we were just in our early teens, um, that was their future. That was their That was their retirement right there. And then came the early 1980s and the turnaround in the farm economy of the 1980s, which didn't just affect farmers, it had an impact on those small-town businesses as well. Long story short, um, they lost more than half of what their retirement portfolio was, so much so that at the end of life, my brother and I both had a chip in to cover the costs of a funeral. That was not a big deal for us. But it's planted in the mind, you know, to always have enough. So Jesus then tells a story to make his point. He loved to do that, right? Scene four. He thought to himself, the man did. He thought to himself, no, um, no, I'm sorry. I'm ahead of myself. So uh, Jesus tells this story. He told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yield an abundant harvest. How is the man described? Rich. Already rich. And then the rains come and the sun shines and the pests are all aligned graciously and he has this huge harvest. He has this bumper crop. I mean, the guy thinks he's in Iowa. Remember now, this fellow hasn't done anything unusual, nothing out of the ordinary to produce this huge harvest. It is a gift. It's a gift from God. That's what Jesus is thinking. That's the point of it. So what is he going to do with the gift? Scene four. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. This already rich man, now even richer, he's got a problem. Literally, the text here says, by the way, that he dialogued with himself. He had a conversation with himself. And that's not normal in the Middle East. Not even in Jesus' day. It's more like 
Growing up in small town Iowa where everybody's business is everybody's business. It would have been normal and natural and customary for this guy to have gone to some friends or some family, had a long discussion about the, the problem. His friends, his community could have helped him to know what to do with that access. access. But he appears not to have many friends. Maybe his wealth has walled him off from meaningful relationships, doesn't say. He lives isolated from others, and the only one he has to talk with about the problem is himself. That's the picture in the mind of Jesus, and that's the picture in the minds of Jesus' listeners, a guy talking with himself. And then he said to himself, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns, build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. He has a plan. He'll tear down the old barns. He'll build bigger barns. Who do you suppose is going to tear down and build, by the way? Is he going to do that all by himself? Is he even going to break sweat? Remember, he's a really rich man. He has servants. He has employees. Probably even has slaves that will be doing the tearing down in the building. No mention of them. It's all about him. I'll do. I'll tear down my barns. I'll store my surplus. Verse 19, the dialogue with himself continues. You'd think he'd be getting bored with himself, but apparently he's really interesting. He says, I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And the Jewish listeners to Jesus that day immediately think of a passage from their book, from their holy book, Ecclesiastes chapter 8. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life God has given them under the sun. That's where the rich man's philosophy comes from. It's in the book. It's in his holy book. Eat and drink and be glad. It's right there in the book. It is. But the book also recognizes all the days of life God has given. That's what the rich man is missing. He doesn't see that. He remembers the first part of the verse, eat, drink, and be merry. And then there's a period for him, a hard period, a hard stop. He has forgotten the rest of the verse the days of life God has given them under the sun. But Jesus remembers the whole verse. Scene 7. God shows up. The dialogue with himself is interrupted. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Folks, the rich man never saw that coming. He never saw 
God coming. He was so fixed on food and drink that fills and satisfies the body that he overlooked that which alone can satisfy the soul. Remember, for Jesus, the body and the soul are one. For Jesus, neither is complete until both are complete. Neither is satisfied until both are satisfied. So God shows up. And what does God call him? You fool. Rather harsh, don't you think? Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I, I don't think so. Why is he a fool? What makes this guy a fool? Perhaps Jesus is saying that here, everything you have and everything you, everything you possess belongs first to God and is on loan from God, and God is calling in the loan. God is calling in the loan. God is calling in the gift, the gift of your very life. Now what's going to happen to all your stuff? And I suspect Jesus' listeners hear another echo from their holy book, from Ecclesiastes again. These words, I hated all things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. Now what? I leave it all behind. Friends, I'm going to suggest to you that the the rich man's major failure was a failure of perspective. And that's where the lesson lies for us. The rich fool's view of life, this dead man talking to himself, the rich man's view of life and that which is important in life was distorted distorted. He was all caught up in the means by which a person exists. House and clothes and food and car and checkbook balance, savings accounts, stock portfolio. The means by which a person exists. Not unimportant, right? It's important stuff. But caught up in the means He was oblivious to the God-intended, God-designed ends, the grand purposes, the true reasons a person exists, such as fulfillment and relationships and service and love and worship and praise. Here's the final scenes. Jesus speaks now to the brother the brother who came seeking justice. And he speaks to all those listening to him in that day, and he speaks to us. He says, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich towards God. Now, one of the things Jesus often does with these stories is he just leaves them hang. Because the purpose is to let people stew in them. Think about them. 
So I've stewed on this one. And, uh, and here's what I'm thinking. And you can then think whatever you want. Okay? You do, you, you do your thinking as well. But here, here's what I'm thinking. Jesus makes it very clear that this story is about greed. That one of the biggest problems we have as human beings is with greed. By the way, it's one of those seven deadly sins. Anybody remember those? You know, like anger, pride, envy, sloth, lust, greed. I'm missing something. But greed, right there in the middle of them. And I'd submit to you that every one of those seven deadly sins has an antidote. A vaccine to protect you from it or an antidote to counter the effects of it. What do you suppose the antidote to greed is? What would you say? What if I said it starts with the letter G? Gratitude, generosity. I like generosity. It's the antidote to greed. Now, before we get stuck, I'm not talking about tithing here. I'm not talking about giving away our possessions necessarily, although Jesus says there's room for that. I mean, that's not, I'm talking about a generosity of spirit. A generosity of spirit. <laughs> Giving of our stuff will just flow out of that. Generosity of spirit is a whole lot bigger than just giving stuff. Generosity of spirit is how we look at other people. Love your neighbor as yourself. See your neighbor generously. <laughs> See the other generously. Doesn't that sound like something Jesus just might advocate for? That's an amen. Let's pray.